Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome along. It's a brand new writer's routine. This week, we're chatting to Bethany Clift. Her debut is out right now. It's called The Last One at the Party, and it is perfectly timed. Listen, humanity has been wiped out by a virus, and one woman is left, wondering what she's going to do now. She's all on her own. Uh, Yeah, as I say, came around at the right time, didn't it? Uh, We talk about how she steals any moment that she can to get her words down, uh, how working in film production has affected the way that she visualises a story, and also how she revelled in writing dystopian fiction. I love that first kind of bit where the single person or the family are alone and they are trying to survive and they might be stuck in their house or they might be stuck in the middle of nowhere or or there is a point at which they are struggling on their own before they interact with anybody else and that is my favorite bit of any book that I've ever read about the end of the world about people left at the end of the world there is more with Bethany Clift on the way in this week's writer's routine Welcome along. Uh, It's this week's writer's routine where we take a look inside the day and the work and the life and the times uh, of an author. Uh, I'm Dan Simpson, or the efficient and endearing interviewer, as one Apple podcaster very kindly wrote. If that's you, thanks a lot. I'm not going to harp on about how I am efficient, (laughs) efficient uh, and endearing. Uh, Yeah, thank you for that. You can always leave us a review, by the way, if you're listening over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, This week, we're chatting to Bethany Clift. Her debut novel, as I say, cannot have been timed more perfectly. Uh, I guess if you're not absolutely terrified by everything at the moment, then this is the perfect book to read. It's called The Last One at the Party, where humanity has been wiped out by the 6DM virus. And one woman is left wondering what on earth she will do now she's alone on the earth. It's set to be big as well. It was one of the publisher's lead title going into this year. The film rights have been sold. Now, we talk about how she got the idea from a a long, lonely journey, how her editor is her saviour. You can hear all about the music that she likes to listen to when she writes and her very strange uh, pre-work rituals involving film trailers. 
Uh, we talk about that and, as I said, how working in film production helped her visualise and tell the story. I'm very interested in that, especially now it's likely to be a film. Is that something to do... Is, is its success something to do with the fact that she thought it in a slightly different way to many other books of this like that are out there? Uh, so that's coming up and we get into it, as we always do, with what Bethany Clift sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I write in a nursing chair, which is a big rocking chair that women use normally to feed babies. Um, And it's not mine, it's my sister's. Um, And once she'd had her son and her son was grown, she didn't have any need for it. So it's a really comfy chair. And I said to her, I'll take that. So I sit in my big rocking chair by my front window that looks out onto my front garden so I can kind of see people walking past or if anyone comes up towards the house. Um, And it's a really sunny, lovely spot. And I always have flowers on the window ledge. And I just put my laptop on my lap and I have a little rock and a cup of tea and I look at the flowers and I look out of the window and then I start writing at some point. When you saw this chair and when you when you <laughs> thought it might be be coming up for auction, um, d- did you instantly know that, ah, that's the chair that I've been looking at to write in? Well, no. I mean, so so obviously it's been in my sister's house and I sat in it with her son and I sat in it sometimes just to read a book and I knew immediately that it was comfy and I'd been working at a desk with another chair and it's funny until you kind of sit your backside in a chair for two hours at a time solidly writing you don't understand I don't think what instrument of torture most of them are um and that was definitely the case with the chair that I currently had and I thought you know what it doesn't matter that I can't put a desk in front of it and it doesn't matter that I'm gonna have to put my laptop on my lap if I'm comfy that's the only thing that matters. And then I realised I was getting old. No, <laughs> and then I suddenly thought, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> old age comes, but at least I'll be happy writing. Yeah, I've got to, sitting in a, in, a, in a chair rocking back and forth does bring to mind like old, <laughs> it really does. Like old Nana Waynetta on the plains of Wyoming shooting trash cans, I'll be honest. She, oh my God, do you know that's my absolute dream? If like, you know, if, if, if I wrote a million bestseller, the first thing I would think I would do is buy a house in the middle of nowhere with a porch and a rocking chair. And I would sit on that porch, staring up at the stars of the night with no light pollution. And I would be perfectly happy for the rest of my life, I think. Uh, handy. That's good. That's, I mean, that, that's, I think that's probably... <laughs> I've already got the chair. I just need the house and the porch now. That's pretty much... <laughs> I'm halfway there. That is quite a writer's <laughs> idyll, actually. Listen, so you're in your front room writing. Um yes. Uh, and I imagine a front room is where most people do other more leisurely things, you know, watching telly, doing all of that stuff. It's mm-hmm. it's family mm-hmm. space. How do you kind of deal with it in your mind that this is a place of leisure and also a place of work? Uh, so the pandemic has changed many, many things, obviously. And one of the things it's changed for me is that kind of view. So Obviously, my writing story is kind of a little bit different in the this. So last one at the party is my debut novel. Um, I wrote it whilst also working uh, for the NHS and I have two kids as well. So I've only ever written in my front room when there's not been anybody else using it. So up until the point where I got a publication deal, I used to either write late at night when the kids were in bed 
um, or at the weekends when they were out and I would literally steal whatever time I could. Um, at one point towards the end, just before we were getting ready for submission, I used to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to get about an hour's work done before my daughter woke up at five and inevitably stopped me from doing anything. So um, for me, it's always been a case that there's never been anybody else in that room up until obviously everybody in my house decided that they weren't going to leave the house again or rather were forced not to leave the house again because of the pandemic um and now there is a continual power struggle and I, I I say power struggle there's a continued noise struggle between the children overtaking the entire front room to as you say play in watch tv and do a bit of work in and me in the corner like some kind of hobbit hunched over my laptop desperately trying to pound out a few words before I get interrupted again. Is there anything that lets you jump into the zone when you are doing that? It, you know, headphones, music, that kind of stuff that just lets you hunker down? I always listen to music when I write. I always listen to music when I write. I have a I have a playlist that I listen to. I listen to a huge amount of Nick Drake when I wrote last one at the party. In fact, it was over and over. I don't, I don't, listen to anything new I listen to things that I know very well so by the time I'd finished writing last one at the party I I mean I could literally quote verbatim any Nick Drake song that you like because I I've listened to them again and again and that is my my immediate way in to writing is to listen to whatever the playlist is um yeah so with my new book I'm listening to a lot of instrumental piano I have an instrumental piano playlist uh, with last one at the party, it was Nick Drake, and every single time I find something new that is my it's it's kind of my muse almost. That's the thing that that sets me off on my writing journey is what what I'm listening to. Another benefit of having a, a, an office when I chat to writers who uh, I spoke to one the other day who was fortunate enough to have purpose built their own office and they you can create curate living the dream no you can curate everything that's around you as in you can have inspirational pictures up you can have creative artwork and you can also have uh, a, a wall that you can use for plotting and that that kind of the planning stage when you're there in, in your in your front room how do you do that side of it like if I would, if I were to walk in and sit down in your the old woman rocking chair, would you see any trace of me, the yeah. writer? No, you wouldn't. I so interestingly, I so last one at the party, I wrote the first sentence before I wrote anything else. I came up with the first sentence, and it just flowed from there. Um, and I had a couple of missteps, but it was really clear in my brain from the very beginning how I was going to write it and what was going to happen. Um, and I make copious notes in notebooks so I always have I, I start a new boat notebook for every single book that I write um, with my second novel that I'm writing at the moment I thought I would I thought I'd better try a bit of planning because I I love those pictures you see that people do and some people do it on on coloured cards and some people do it on huge excel spreadsheets and some people just plaster the wall with paper and I, I'm I'm very visual and I love this idea of visually looking at my book on a wall and, and, and seeing the journey plotted and, and, and the ups and the downs and every single beat laid out in front of me. So uh, about six months ago, I plastered my entire kitchen wall with different coloured 
cards that had every single character's journey and had, you know, every single beat and had kind of the upbeats and the downbeats. And it was just incredibly detailed about my entire novel. I plotted the entire novel on the wall. And I looked at the cards when I put them up. And then six months later, I looked at them again when I pulled them back down off the wall. Because it, it turned out that I am not someone who can plan things visually at all. I I write and that's how I know what's going to happen to my characters and what's going to happen in my stories. I, I write it. Um, so I will make a lot of handwritten notes in books that I will scribble out as I use them. I also will just... I'll go off and I'll write a story about something that they've done or their backstory. And in some cases, it might be, you know, 10 pages, 20 pages. And it doesn't actually fit into the story in the end. So I'll write it into my story and then I'll take it out again. But I I, I have to write about them. I have to learn about them as I go along. I have to think about what they did when they were 11. You know, how how they made their best friend, how they lost their best friend how they fell in love the first time, how they fell out of love. It's not something that I can just stick on a piece of card and say, in 1986, this happened, and then move on. I have to explore how that did happen, which is a really interesting thing, I think, because I think sometimes as a debut novelist, you really don't know what kind of novelist you are yet until you start writing your second book, your third book, your fourth book. And that's when you you learn who you are and how you write. Well, you're, you're cracking through your second novel now. Um, have you come any closer to discovering what kind of writer, what kind of novelist you are? Um, as I say, I am I am a writer, so I I that's that's how I do it. I write it, and I have, and so I I wrote seventy thousand words of my second novel. Um, and then I went back and I started again and I probably of those 70,000 words I probably kept about 30,000 words and then I wrote through and it's just that process for me the process is that I, I, I discover my story as I write my story and that's how my story changes as well so at some point I have to force myself to just finish it because I think I keep changing keep changing keep changing and it keeps getting better and I keep getting closer to what it is that I actually want to write but I am I I am very much a believer in just write it that's that I I think if I was going to say what kind of novelist I am at the moment I would say I am a novelist who says write the story write the novel because you can't edit something that's not there so get it down I think it's it is it Frank Cottrell Bryce who says slap it down just slap it down that's the way to do it or well, that's the way that I do it is is just get it on the page and then worry about whether or not it's good enough afterwards so my editor Kimberly is absolutely brilliant and I mean another thing about being a first-time novelist uh is that you obviously go through the editing process for the first time and I was extremely lucky in that I went to the Northern Film School um, and part of my course in the Northern Film School was that we would critique each other's works in small groups. So you would sit amongst a group of kind of six of your peers and we would each read the film script that we'd written or whatever we'd written and we would kind of, you know, say what the good points were, what the bad points were. I had a great tutor who used to open every single feedback session by saying, now there's a lot of great stuff in here. 
but we're not going to talk about that. And it was just such a brilliant way of saying, I, you know, I love parts of this, but there's no point in me feeding back and telling you how much I love it. I've got to tell you and speak about how we can improve it. And so I'd got some experience of working and getting critique on my work. And I think, you know, it's it's very hard sometimes, I think, to kind of accept that critique. But my experience with Kimberly has just been that every single thing that she said and every single thing that she suggested has just been absolute gold. And every single thing that she has helped me to do to my novel since she became my editor has just made it better in in ways that I never even thought it could be. So it's just been such a brilliant, brilliant process. And I'm so excited to do it with my second novel with her and yes I think and, and she's she's just been brilliant because she said you know this is a first draft and this is what we're going to work on and this is it, it will only get better from here so that's just so supportive and lovely to hear because you're not kind of thinking oh my goodness I can't send her anything where there's any kind of mistake or I'm not sure about what I've done or or, or how it's gonna how she's gonna how she's gonna take it because she very much you know, acknowledges that a first draft is a first draft. And I think that's the other thing that you have to remember is this is your starting off point. It's nowhere near what's going to be on the page at the end. When she was giving you suggestions and, and, and critiques while editing, were they things that upon reflection, upon her advice, you thought, oh, this has been blindingly obvious the whole time or is it the kind of stuff that really only someone who has edited book after book after book could really seek out I think it's a little bit of both I think I think there's there's definitely for me I mean there are there were obviously novelists who don't really get their work edited and know themselves and know their craft so well that they can kind of write something in, in and out into the world it goes but for me, there were points that Kim pointed out where I thought, oh, I should really have seen that. But then there were points that that she said that I, I personally wouldn't I would not have thought of. And that's, you know, and 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 I would never have actually thought about approaching it that way if she hadn't suggested it. So, you know, it, an editor's role for me is, is just so important. And she she has just you know helped make my novel so brilliant and and she's such a great editor because she doesn't kind of you know she in no way says I don't like this bit you need to rethink it she you know the way that she words things and the way that she works with you is always in such a positive fashion as in we you know this character's journey how can we push this character's journey further how can we make this this more emotionally satisfying for the reader and it's that, and it's that, and that's a great, the great skill of being a really good editor, I think, is being able to nudge an author in a direction where it's entirely the author's own imagination that's pushing it. So it's still the author's book, but it's a better version of the book than it would have been. Is there, I guess it's quite hard for you to have figured this out yet because you're you're writing through your second novel, but in the editing of um, of the first, have you kind of come to a, a hill that you are willing to die on, something that maybe your sense editors don't really like, but you're you're thinking, no, this needs to be included. This is, I, I love this part. I think, well, we one of the sayings that I've heard quite a lot is, you, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think as an author, you, 
this is such a collaborative process and it, it and it, when it works really well that is what makes for me that is that is what has made my novel is the fact that it is a collaborative process and that it's not just been me kind of like writing in a bunker but as an author I do think you need to know what it is what your bottom line is with your work what is it that you love about your novel that is the reason why you are writing it so for me it was very much that I didn't want my protagonist I didn't want there to be a point at which my protagonist finds a group of survivors this is not really a massive spoiler because <laughs> you know but yeah it, but I didn't I didn't want her to find a massive group of survivors I didn't want to turn my novel about how someone can survive on their own in such an extreme world to be about how a group of people survive together on you know in this extreme world I didn't want it to become a kind of a novel about relationships I wanted it to be about her relationship with herself um so quite early on in the process before before I'd submitted before I had my publication deal I had some advice from an early reader who said you know she's such a great character it would be fantastic if she met someone and perhaps they went on the journey together and it became like a kind of almost a buddy story where they could you know they didn't get along and they bounced off each other and they you know the other person would be very different and that was from someone who was interested in working with me on the novel but I had to make a decision at that point and that was not the novel that I wanted to write and I guess and I spoke about it to my husband and I said you know I feel like if I go along this way then this person will work with me and you know but and he said to me but that's not what your novel is about that's not what you want to write you need to write what you want to write because you're still going to be writing it in a year or two years time and if you don't love it then that's going to be a really hard process to go through. And he was 100% right. You you know, I, I wouldn't have been writing what I wanted to write had I made that change. And that's the sort of decision, that's the sort of hill that you need to decide that you want to die on, I think. If it's that fundamental, then for me, that was that was just the step and the change that I wasn't willing to make. Now, just lastly on the writing space... Uh, just to head back there and we get quite niche uh, so you're there in your rocking chair writing on your laptop um, <laughs> with my blanket <laughs> with my cup of tea and my rich teas at five my shotgun by my side <laughs> um listen well what, what software are you writing on is is it straight up word yes so i have an ancient laptop that i write on with ancient word on it and i save every single day's work as a new file and then I email it to myself because I should save everything on the cloud. But the one time I saved everything on the cloud, I couldn't find it again and had the world's biggest panic attack and had to get my husband to come home from work and search through the computer to find it for me. So now I have a little tradition where I say it as version 7448 and then I I send it, I've got a little ancient old Hotmail account that's nothing but different versions. And I Hotmail account, I send it to myself in my Hotmail account. And that's how I finish each day of work is that I send myself the new version. And then obviously I never look at it again because I just open it up on my desktop the next day. But I know 
it's there and it's safe if anything happens like the house burns down or one of the kids drops the laptop in the bath or something (laughs) I'm not gonna lose that day's work so so yes but no yeah I'm I'm straight onto word I I keep seeing all these really great kind of tools that people talk about on Twitter other writers and it's just you know it's one of those things I think that if you can use them, that's great. And if you know about them, but for me, I think it would just take me too long to kind of get my head around it. So my trusty word and my word count <laughs> is where I'm at. Um, what about fonts? Beth? Do you have any staunch font opinions? Oh, courier. <laughs> I remember when, when I was, when I was much younger, I, um, <laughs> and I did my first TV script. I did it in Arial. And I sent it to like one of my friends who worked in the TV industry. And he came back to me and said, oh, Ariel, that's very brave. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Nothing about the script whatsoever. His like, literal one line was, oh, Ariel, that's very brave. <laughs> I didn't realise that there was some kind of, you know, <laughs> allowed version. <laughs> there, is, there is a font hierarchy here. There is there a really font hierarchy. Is. <laughs> and, and the thing is, you, you never know where you sit on it. You, no. just, always, you just always feel judged. Listen, you, you've kind of been talking about your writing day earlier on with waking up absurdly early, but the show is writer's routine, Beth. So talk us through yours, if you can. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed uh, on a day when you are sat down to write, how's it looking at the moment for your second book take me through the day um well obviously a day in lockdown is very different from a day out of lockdown because uh in lockdown it's uh, to be honest there's there's very little routine in lockdown because there's homeschooling to be done and the dog to be walked and kids to try and keep from throwing themselves down the stairs um not on purpose one of them fell down the stairs the other day it just happens sometimes (laughs) but um but yeah, so <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh my God, you know my house. And <laughs> um, so, so let's talk. We'll talk about outside of lockdown. So outside of lockdown, I start writing as early as I can. I will normally start writing probably by about eight o'clock in the morning, just because I write the best. I, I do my best work in the morning. Um, and I turn my laptop on and I was having this discussion with Twitter, someone on Twitter the other day. And I have a weird ritual whereby before I can write a single word, I have to watch a film trailer on IMDb. So I open up IMDb. I look to see if there's any new film trailers. If there are, I'll watch a new one. And if not, I'll watch an old one that I like. But I have to watch just one film trailer before I can write a single word every single day it's yeah it's just it's one of those weird things that writers do so <laughs> that's mine <laughs> so I will do that and I'll try I try very hard not to look at social media um whilst I'm writing and I also do stick uh to the Pomodoro method if I can so I have a my, my husband very kindly bought me an actual tomato timer so I've got a tomato timer and I will put that on and I do, I work 25 minutes and then I will have a rest, get a glass of water and then go again. Um, and I will normally try and work straight through till about midday. So I'll normally try and get kind of four hours done. Um, and if, if I take, if I, if, if I need to take the kids to school, then I start at nine and I get three hours, but I do the main chunk of my writing straight away in the morning. I find I'm freshest. I've got ideas that I've thought of that night um the night before rather so I'm yeah so that's what I do and then I break I'll break and I normally try and do some kind of exercise for 20 minutes half an hour have some lunch 
and then I'll go back and I will work again until I need to I normally go and pick the kids up at about three so I'll do another couple of hours in the afternoon um and then I go for a big walk with the kids and the dog and during that time if the kids are quiet at any point I like to think about any problems that I've had that day I find that if I come up against any kind of blocks or issues the way that I normally get past that is uh it used to be on the train I used to find staring out of a train window is when I had my most breakthrough moments my most ingenious oh that's how that can work and that's what I can do but uh I haven't been on train now in a year so that's good (laughs) so um so now it's dog walking so dog walking is how I kind of clear my mind and and clear through any kind of obstacles in my way um so yeah so dog walk and then at the moment because the because of um the publication of last one at the party um and because I've got some other projects as well I normally will work in the evening when the kids have gone to bed as well so I'll normally start work again about about eight and then work until about 10 o'clock so it's quite busy at the moment but I I do other things in the evening so I'll do social media and answer emails and work on other projects other than my book too um yeah so yeah with the Pomodoro technique what I've always wondered is the brain tends to be quite good at sussing things out and kind of falling into a routine <laughs> and, I, and I'm, I'm always wondering with, <laughs> as you come to the end of the 25 minutes uh say for instance say you set yourself a goal of working for two hours without any breaks at all no five minute gaps and and you might be able to get into that and then towards the end of that two hours your brain would get tired and it would got to pull yourself out be hard to work is the 25 minutes like a microcosm of that time does that make sense it does make sense and I think because I don't know whether it's because it is quite a short amount of time or whether it's because of the fact that I am writing and I am writing kind of fiction I find that I am always surprised when the alarm goes off it it always happens a lot quicker than I think it's going to Um, And so at the beginning of the 25 minutes, I might find that I glance across and I'll see my phone by the side of me and I'll think, oh, I'll just and then think, no, you won't, because it's still in the 25 minutes, get back and work. But by the time, you know, by the time the end comes, I'm normally full flow. And I and I will sometimes find that I'll just write past. I'll just carry on when the, when the tomato goes, <laughs> when the tomato rings, I'll still carry on. Um and then you carry on until you reach a natural end. But I try, I try not to do a word count or or kind of set myself a specific goal for each day because I find I'll always be racing to reach that goal if I do. And then if I reach it early, I kind of don't write anymore. And then if I don't reach it, I feel like, you know, today's not been a great day when actually the nature of writing fiction is that some parts of it are a lot harder than others. Some of it flows from you and you can't write fast enough to get it down, and some of it you pulled from your very gut while screaming into the darkened void about why did you choose this route for your life? You know, you just it, it, it's really hard to say on any given day how well it's going gonna, it's gonna to go. So I think to set myself goals is, is probably not the healthiest thing. If there isn't any goals, how do you know what, what you want to get done? Like, there might not be this has to get done, but... What when you sit there at eight o'clock in the morning, how do you know, okay, 
this is what I'm working on today. We'll see how it goes. I, I set myself a rough goal for the week. So I will say I, I tend to set myself a goal. I'll kind of plan each week because I don't necessarily. So I, I know what's going to happen in my novel and I know roughly how it's going to happen and how I'm going to get from the very beginning where people have wants and needs to the very end where they still probably have wants, but they don't have needs. So, um, but I'm going to, you know, I know kind of what it looks like and I know roughly what their journey is going to be. So I will say, I will say by the end of this week, I want X, Y, and Z to have happened. Or I want to be at that point. Um, so I roughly kind of, cause I know where I want to be at the end of the week. I can kind of judge how it's going um and then obviously I do have a deadline so <laughs> I have a deadline and I know that you know by this time I need to have sent my next draft across or sent my first draft across so it's you know it's one of those things I think where I it's it's a really it's a fine balance between acknowledging that I'm not doing a job whereby you can judge yourself really on your output each day but then also knowing that you've got to keep, you have to keep moving forward. As I say, just slap it down. And some days I'll, I'll, you know, slap down stuff that I'm like, that's amazing. And some days I'll slap down stuff and be like, oh, oh God, I'm going to be editing that for like weeks to come. <laughs> the biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. More with Bethany in just a sec on writer's routine. Now, we've been a little bit font-obsessed on the show recently. It's not just us as well. It might be something in the air. I was listening to um, Kermode and Mayo's uh, The Film Review, and they were talking about it too. Uh, and I'm thinking, if you've got any staunch font opinions, you can join in on our font chat that we're having right now over on Patreon. We're talking about which ones we love and which ones we hate, what changing font does, if it really affects anything. 
Uh, that's all happening on Patreon. I'd love you to get involved. It's not just Font Chat, by the way. We're not exclusively Font Chat. We're also talking about how the last year has changed the way that you tell your stories. What have you learned through lockdown that might possibly help you out in the future? What's been the only silver lining of the last 12 months? You can sign up and get involved uh, over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine for just a few dollars a month. You really help out the show. You help us carry on bringing you chats with some of the best authors around as often as we can. You get merch, you get bonus episodes, and there is even a way for your book to sponsor the show. Uh, and as I say, you get access to a place where writers come together to share tips, to share advice. It's a, a burgeoning writing social network that I'm trying to happen. A little bit too late to be Zuckerberg, but I'm giving it my best shot. Uh, yeah, you can sign up and help out and get access to all of that at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Bethany Clift chatting about the debut, The Last One at the Party. We talk about how she wrote a dystopian novel and how she feels about it coming out at quite a dystopian time. Uh, we hear how much she knew about the story before she started writing and how that first line really pushed her on. And we pick it up talking about working in films and how that has influenced the way that she tells stories. So my background is in film production and film writing, really. So film and TV script writing is where I started out and what I did before uh, moving on to write Last One at the Party, which is my first novel. Um, yeah, so so I am used to writing things that are a lot shorter. So, you know, like 60 pages, 120 pages, and now obviously... This is this is a much longer process. <laughs> well, let's just build on that then. What did working in in film and telly, working in production, writing shorter things, what did that teach you about? Well, it's not necessarily what did it teach you about writing a novel. How do you think that affected? How, how, no, how did it kind of affect the way you visualised a story? Because I kind of think someone that's been consumed by films for so long might look at a, a story, especially one like yours slightly different from someone that comes to it from a more literary background if you know what I mean yeah and I think and I think that kind of shows in my writing it's it, it's interesting because I was speaking to someone at a tv production company the other day and saying how it's 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 really interesting because obviously with film you show don't tell and you're constantly having to make things shorter and quicker and 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 what you get on the page has to be so succinct and has to give the idea of exactly what you want just in a very short space. Whereas in a novel, you've got a lot more space and a lot more pages to be literary. You know, it's it's literature. It's, you know, you're supposed to kind of like have a prose and for it to be flowing and and you can put it all on the page. And I think for me, that's been the most interesting thing is the change in how I've written. So I think I'm still a very visual writer. I think I I still am learning how to write kind of emotion and write about my character's emotional journey on the page rather than just trying to show my character's emotional journey on the page. Um and I think that's kind of been one of the one of the most interesting things or one of the one of the greatest things to actually make when you make that transition is the freedom that you get to kind of talk about your character's inner emotional journey rather than have to have the audience infer that 
Um, so it's 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 really nice. It gives you a huge amount of freedom. I mean, obviously, you know, three hundred pages is is a lot more time and space to develop than sixty or one hundred and twenty. So it's you know, it's it's been a really kind of nice and interesting and enjoyable process to be in. How long did it kind of take you to make? that I guess realization when you started working on last one at the party how long when you kind of thought you know what I've, I've got this room to play with yeah I think so I think it's my first draft of last one at the party that went to my agent was just under 70,000 words and the the you know the the final version that's out now is I think just over 100,000 so I think that kind of that period was where I realised that I can kind of play about a little bit more, have a little bit more space to kind of explore things. Is So it's been over the last kind of two years, two and a half years whilst I've been writing. Um, I think it's, I think because I could talk about, because it was in in her voice, I think it's a lot easier or it's, for me, it's been a lot of an easier transition because it felt very natural to talk about how she was feeling um, and kind of expand on that so I think in that way it was it was an easier transition across um, but I still think it's you know even in my second novel it's still something that I think I I immediately go to kind of describe the scene before I describe the inner emotions of the character and it's something that I'm still learning I can do I'm allowed to do now is to talk about what that inner what that inner kind of thoughts and that inner process is for each of the characters rather than just how they're interacting with their environment now the debut is uh, last one at the party and it's um it's quite the time to release this book now you've already <laughs> you've already mentioned the um the, the the first sentence that kind of came to you and got you rolling um but just unpack the the very first moment that the idea for what would become this story uh, came to you. How, how did the idea present itself? Um, so I, so it, ca- it it came kind of the first time I thought about it was when I was I was driving home after I'd been at a conference with work and I was in the middle of the Oxfordshire countryside and it was the middle of winter. Um, and I was using Google Maps and Google Maps had gone dark and I was not I was on a country road I hadn't seen the town for ages I hadn't seen a sign for ages I didn't know where I was it was late at night I had no phone signal and I just realized that I was terribly terribly lost and I stopped the car and I got out and it was just so silent and quiet that I couldn't hear any kind of human-made noise at all. There were no cars, there were no houses, there were no planes. I said there's there were there were some cows in the field next door and I could hear them chewing so loudly that I was literally like, "Will you just be quiet? I'm lost and I don't know where I am." And it was it was one of those moments, a bit like when you get when you're on a motorway and for a brief moment there's no one coming towards you and there's no one behind you and you think, oh, I'm the last person on the M1 tonight. (laughs) And it was just that times 100 in that I just had a sudden moment of, oh my God, there's no one else here. What if there is no one else here? What would that be like if I were the last person 
left on the planet? What would I do and where would I go? And and that was it, really. And that moment over the next kind of few months just snowballed into the idea of last one at the party. Where did that develop from? So it's, it's, there's snowballing, but what happens next, Bethany? So when you've got that, that initial idea, hang on, what happens if I am the last one? And then, and it ends up with someone, it ends up with a story where you're, you're so confident in what you want it to be that you've got the hill to die on where you don't want her to be, have any help with this. You don't want her to meet other people. How do you like connect the two for me, if you can? I, I guess the question is, when you've had that initial idea, then what happens next? Uh, so I, um, having had that initial idea, I am, I'm a lover of dystopian fiction anyway. I'm a lover of the end, end of the world fiction. I'm a lover of apocalypse fiction. You know, if it's got kind of people battling to survive after some kind of disaster, then, you know, count me in. Um, but what I love the most about those books and um, what took the from the initial idea um to something more was I love that first moment I love that first kind of bit where the single person or the family are alone and they are trying to survive and they might be stuck in their house or they might be stuck in the middle of nowhere or or there is a point at which they are struggling on their own before they interact with anybody else. And that is my favourite bit of any book that I've ever read about the end of the world, about people left at the end of the world. Um, so like I Am Legend, I was massively influenced, obviously, by I Am Legend, which is just, you know, a genius of a book. And I, I wanted to write about someone who is on their own for the entire time. Because, as I said, I find... Sometimes when I'm reading when I'm reading dystopian fiction or apocalypse fiction, there is this sense that they're on their own and then sometimes the story will shift when they meet other people and it becomes more about how we as humans can be together at the end of the world and how we either help each other or we don't help each other in those situations. And I wanted I wanted very much to avoid that. Um I wanted to just have it about one person. So I wanted her to be her own protagonist and antagonist at the same time. Um, but in order to do that, I soon realised that, you know, she need, you need to know more about her. She doesn't meet anybody else. She doesn't talk. She never speaks to another person throughout the entire novel. So you have to, I'm, again, not really a spoiler, um, <laughs> you, have to, um, you have to find some way to explore who your character is. And hence the reason why I soon realised that we needed to follow her both, both in the present day, but also in her past to learn more about her and how she ended up as she is. For this one, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about her until I started writing her. So I, as I said, I, I came up with the first line. I literally sat down at my computer and I thought, I want to write this story about the last woman left alive. How will I start it? And I thought, I'm going to start it like that. So I started it. I, I came up with the first line and then I I wrote the first kind of section. Uh, so the first about 30 pages, which is actually about the pandemic or how that takes hold on what happens and how everybody else disappears. Um, I wrote that straight out within about the first couple of weeks. I just literally sat down and wrote that. 
And then as I started to, as she started to kind of come together and explore London and explore what she was going to do next, I, her backstory kind of just came out of that really. So I, I wrote about her in the present day. I wrote about her after after 6DM and then her her kind of backstory started to kind of reveal itself a little bit more, which is how it happens with all my characters. It kind of, they kind of, as I reach a point in their journey whereby I think I need to know why they've acted like that, that's when I start writing the backstory. And I've written a lot of backstory for the characters in my second novel that will never be in the novel, but it's there for me. It's not for, it's not for anyone else. It's, it, it's, it's how I explore who they are and how they became to be who they are what about tone i asked that because i mean this by virtue of simply being an apocalypse novel it's you know it's got to be thrilling uh, it's got to have that that edge of, of of tenseness running the whole way through but i mean also it's funny your the virus is 60m six days maximum that's funny i think like one of the first things that she does is um you know, goes and gets smashed at Harrods and stays in the Langham's. Like, like, that is funny. How much thought, and especially if we're staying with this character without really anyone else for 300-odd pages, they've got to be likeable. They've got to, like, have humour to take us through. How did you go about balancing all those different tones? Um, I think it's not, it's not easy. I think, as you said, you've got to, you know... We are, even before our current pandemic, you know, it's a novel about a pandemic. It's a novel in which every single person that she loves dies, essentially. Well, not essentially, they die. Um, so I kind of felt that there had to be some some humour in it. Otherwise, you just wouldn't want to read it. I mean, it's like, you know, I love The Road. I think that's an absolutely amazing novel. And I was talking about this the other day, about how you know it's a really amazing novel because terrible things happen it, but you still keep reading it. Um, but I didn't want to write something as dark as that. I didn't want this to be a dark novel. This is a novel about hope. It's a novel about what happens to her and how and why she decides to live in the end. Um, so I think if I'd started out in an incredibly dark way, that would have been really hard to keep a reader going through. And I, you know, I, I think especially at the moment, the beginning is quite tough for some people to read because it is very close to the bone at the moment and you know some some dark things happen naturally in it but then I think as humans we you know we are humorous creatures we we find laughter in the most ridiculous of situations you know you're moving a corpse it, it's going to be flatulent Farts are funny. I mean, I was literally talking about this with someone the other day. You know, my kids roll around on the floor. I think at fart jokes, and you get older, you still laugh at them. <laughs> you may not want to admit it, but you do. And I think, I think that's where the humour comes from: is that we can all recognise the ridiculousness of situations that we find ourselves in, even when those situations are like horrible and harrowing. I think your natural reaction as a human is to try and find some levity and try and find some light. So that I think is where a lot of the humour comes from. And she is, you know, she is as a character, she is, she is witty and she is, you know, she's got a background in writing. She is, that's how she naturally would write is these kind of like funny situations. And it's hard to answer this one without spoiling too much. Uh, just, 
more about the end of stories like this because they because they can't lead in 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 too many different directions really and you right going into this fairly open-endedly uh, not knowing much about it when did you start to realize oh hang on this is where this is leading um so i so interestingly the original version the very first version had a very different ending to this to the version the published version um but it wasn't such a satisfying ending for me i didn't i didn't think um which is why the it ends where it ends and for me the reason why it ends where it ends which has proved to be a lot more controversial than I thought it would be. I, d- I didn't even, I was talking about this to Kim the other day. I just didn't even think that people would find the ending controversial. I just thought, well, there you go. It's just the end, isn't it? <laughs> um, it ends where it ends because this, that is the end of this part of her story. You know, this is, the, she has had a natural progression to this point. She has grown as who she is. She has grown kind of like, where she is and her capabilities and this is the point at which this 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 is where this is the natural end to this part of her life so that's why it ends where it ends <laughs> but i in answer to a lot of people's questions i do know what happens after the end um so yeah and there is there is obviously for the people who've read it will realize that there is more to her story there is more to her story. It's just not there. Is that being told by you? At some um, point? I don't. I don't know. It very much depends. Um, I yes. I I obviously. I hope so. But I mean, you know, we'll have to see how well received this this one is. You know, there's no there's no guarantees. But um, but we'll see. I mean, obviously, I I'm lucky enough to have had the TV rights options as well. So um, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen. Well, it's just interesting to 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 know something about the character and the story that you've not written down, like that you've not put in the book. Like that's quite an interesting dynamic. Yes, yeah. So she's yes, it's yeah. It felt. I mean, it, it felt as I say, it felt like the natural end. But actually, I there is there is more that yeah, there is more that could have been written, but it's not at this point. <laughs> Um, well, lastly, and this kind of leads on from that, this is your, it's your debut novel. I mean, it's, it's looks to be set up to be fairly successful. I mean, it was, um, your publisher's like lead fiction novel for the year. It was bought, been sold in seven territories. You've already mentioned the TV rights and the film TV rights are, are going, have gone rather. Um, what's it like for you as a, as a debut novelist to have worked on this for quite a long time and now to put it out there? And you know that in a way, it's no longer yours. So the people that are finding the ending controversial, they're taking an element of the story that you you, you had never really thought about. How has that process been? Um, oh, <laughs> it's 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 very strange. It's it's very strange. It's very strange at any time. I think it's especially strange to have a debut novel out during a pandemic and during lockdown because obviously, normally you would go out and do signings and meet people and you'd kind of get that face-to-face kind of feedback and 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 that social social side to it um obviously at the moment I I haven't been able to do that but I have found you know there's such an amazing book community on Twitter who are so supportive and have just been absolutely lovely and there's like a 
2021 uh, group, 2021 debut group that are very supportive and full of like amazing authors who've got amazing books coming out this year and still find the time to kind of support each other. And we have a lot of conversations on there. Um, obviously, Hodder, my publishing company, are incredible. And the team that have worked with me have been amazing as well. Um, literally, every single one of them has just been brilliant um i'd like to reel loads of names off but i probably shouldn't um but they know who they are <laughs> um so it's been i think it's it's just strange whenever it happens and especially strange at the moment and you know people commenting on your work is who who just have never met you is just a really weird thing to happen um anyway but I mean most people have been really lovely and and people who who don't like it have got probably very genuine reasons not to so you know I I can't possibly say that they that they that they don't so um so yeah so I think it's uh, but I think it's it's the internet's a crazy and interesting thing isn't it because you're just it's just out there for everyone to see so that's kind of that has taken getting some getting used to but I think the fact that Obviously, you get kind of arcs onto Goodreads and NetGalley means that you get a little bit of an opportunity to, you know, harden up a bit before it goes before it gets published. <laughs> so by the time it gets published, you're like, yeah, I've had a one star review. Who cares? <laughs> I do care. I do care. <laughs> And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Bethany Clift. Uh, you can get a copy of The Last One at the Party right now, wherever you're listening, uh, and over at writersroutine.com as well. Now, next week, uh, we're chatting to Brian Christie, who had, I think, my dream job. Um, I'm a little unequipped for it physically, but I'd like to give it a crack. He was the head of special investigations for National Geographic. Got, you know, paid to go around the world looking into some of the, the things that are, go- are going or some of the crimes that are going on all around the planet trying to figure it out trying to write it trying to sort them out it's stunning that you can do that as a job uh, and he's written a new thriller all about a spy that's undercover as a wildlife reporter they do say write what you know uh, that's next week on Writer's Routine. In the meantime, get involved at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. You can support the show, follow us on Twitter, and you can get in contact as well at writersroutine.com. And I will see you next week with Brian Christie on the show. Until then, have a brilliant few days, and I'll see you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>